friend. If you only knew how I've been waiting for this. Even if you don't respond, talking to you is good. It is good for me. It's good for me. You're good for me. I have seen no one for a week. That's not unusual. I have in the past gone years without seeing anyone, but that was because I really didn't want to. There are times when one requires absolute solitude. Quiet meditation. There are also times when one needs to escape from potential danger like a beast hunted in the woods and burrow away for an unusually long period of hibernation. There are indeed those times, but I am not currently experiencing one of those times. Rather, I require... No, that's not quite right. I crave company. Deeply and innocently, I want it. But I haven't seen anyone at all in so long. Not even possibly an imaginary someone, as was the case last week, which gave me hope. This week that hope has started just slightly to wither away. What is one week in an endless sea of weeks, months, years? This too shall pass. I believe this. I must believe this. Well, enough about me. How are you? I hope you've had some company. Even one person, even for one minute. Did you laugh? Did you eat? Did you love them? Did you dislike them? <laughs> I wish you could tell me about it. I would listen. I hope you know that. I remember, in my long since past past, what it was like to dine with many, many friends, family, loved ones, companions. I could not describe to you their faces or their clothes or their ages or anything like that, but I can tell you that the feeling I felt was warm, safe, joyful. And it's ironic that at the time I may have perhaps taken it for granted, occasionally longed for solitude that I have in excess of now. I may have found it tedious, found people tedious. I suppose that the soul longs for what it doesn't have at all times, and this is the stupid paradox we must contend with, the fickle nature of contentment. Does such a thing even exist? I would be content with a meal with you, my friend, if I could have one, whoever you are. Just a couple of hours to share a simple meal. Conversation, gratitude, company, a bite. The simple things. This, of course, reminds me of a story I collected once. It is the story of an old, lonely woman. 
Mm, no. Let me try that again. It is the story of a woman who was, at one time of her life, the most glamorous, wealthy, generous, popular, and well-liked woman in her social circle. She had the grandest house in her town, but she opened it frequently for everyone to enjoy, prince and pauper alike. But, as she grew older and her friends died, whether it be in war, of disease, from drink, or simply old age, so did the town's memory and fondness of her. She never married, never had children, had no living family. She was, everyone surmised, alone. And so she became merely an old, lonely woman that other people in town pitied and avoided. As her immense fortune was also decaying and fading with time, along with her former glory, she never left her stately home without a set of her fine pearls or gems, a dusty, wide-brimmed hat, and silk gloves that were once white but now stained with time. Ladies snickered at how dusty, faded, and outdated in style her outfits were. Men scoffed at the fact that an older woman had the audacity to wear clothes meant for a young lady. But she simply smiled and nodded a sweet hello to everyone she saw. Whether she heard the remarks or not, she was polite and kind to everyone and always offered to host them for dinner. Hello, how is your family? You must come over to dinner sometime, was her social mantra, as it had been in the past. Yet she was mocked for it now. No one ever took her up on her offer and so she consistently dined alone. They knew this, and yet she spoke frequently about all of her illustrious friends who even still came to visit her, the lovely chats they had, the expensive bottle of wine they shared. It didn't help her cause, the fact that some of the names she mentioned in these moments were names of people who had been dead for many a year. So, you see, not only was she seen as pathetic and cloying now, but she was also considered to be mad. After several months of not making an appearance in town, everyone assumed she had died. The local constable sat in his office and groaned when another officer grudgingly suggested that he stop by and check on her, see if their suspicions were true. He grimaced at the thought of perhaps needing to be the one to come upon her long-dead corpse, but he agreed that it must be done. So the constable made his way up the hill to her enormous, near-vacant home. He knocked on the door three times. He waited thirty seconds. He knocked on the door three more times. He waited thirty more seconds. Sighing to himself, he tried the door, and to his surprise and concern, it opened easily. Her home was gorgeous, or at least it once was. On the ceiling hung the largest chandelier he had ever seen in his life, and though it was missing crystals here and there, and it was covered in cobwebs, he couldn't help but stand in awe of it. The Grand Hall, which featured a beautiful spiral staircase and several beautiful paintings, the oldest of which must have been painted at least two hundred years ago, smelled of decaying roses, sweet and foul at the same time. A mouse scurried across the beautiful red and gold carpet that sprawled across the floor. Somewhere a pigeon batted its wings furiously against the ivory and gold-patterned ceiling. Madam, he called out, though no one answered. He paced the main floor and entered what looked to be a dining room. Unlike the rest of the mansion, it was immaculately clean. 
A huge dining table spanned the entire length of the dining room, the entire room being much bigger than two of his homes combined, he noted to himself. It was set for at least thirty people, perhaps more. As he leaned over to inspect the china, expensive-looking stuff, he muttered to himself, he heard from behind him, Constable, welcome. He spun around, and there she was. She was in her housecoat and slippers, but those were made of red velvet and trimmed in fur, though they weren't without their missing or discolored patches. <sighs> Madam, hello. Forgive the intrusion, but I came to call on you and see if you were well. No sooner had he said that did he notice she did not look very well at all. Her eyes were more sunken, her skin gray and translucent, her posture less proud, more weak. Her hands shook. She looked overall quite unwell. But she smiled broadly and answered, How kind of you. I am quite well, Constable. In fact, very well. You see, I am hosting a dinner party this week, Friday evening. He tried to make the sigh this statement drew inaudible. Is that so? He humored her. Indeed, she replied, coming closer to him with what seemed to be renewed vigor. Her excitement made her seem younger, in fact. Indeed, you must come. You and your family, there will be food, wine, music, dancing. You see, this is to be the grandest party I've ever thrown. Is that so? He repeated. Indeed. I expect many an old friend to come, some of whom, and I don't mean to brag, are quite famous in this region. Or used to be, at least. <laughs> Not unlike me. Anyhow, statesmen, politicians, a fantastic troupe of performers I met on my travels years ago, and... Uh, she kept going, listing off the illustrious guests who would be at the party. Again, the constable knew some of whom had been long dead, or moved to other countries and been forgotten by the town. And he felt embarrassment for the poor woman who had seemingly lost her faculties. He condescendingly agreed to come to her party and bring his wife and children, even his wife's sister who was coming to visit, she insisted, and he left the home with absolutely no intention of following up. He was merely relieved that he did not have to clean up a body and file the paperwork. She was good on her word on organizing this extravagant party. She spent the next few days going about town with beautifully penned invitations on yellowed pieces of paper, inviting everyone she came across. It will be the loveliest evening. You simply must come, she insisted. She repeated her guest list over and over again, and people either smiled and nodded, or they sighed and rolled their eyes. Many of them accepted the invitation in an overly gracious way, some accepted in an overtly mocking way, some came up with an excuse as to why they couldn't make it, and others simply rejected it with a stern no. Whatever their reply, even if she knew they were greeting her politeness with rudeness, she smiled and shook their hand and left beaming, despite the sickness in her eyes and her age showing in each step she took. She stepped into the small baker's shop and requested enough bread, cakes, and pastries for a feast for at least a hundred. Whatever you would like to sell me, I will take. The baker raised his eyebrows in shock and suspicion, but she insisted she'd pay him whatever he wanted and more, and that she'd have the items picked up the day before the party. He took the crazy old woman's money and started baking, muttering to himself about what a waste it was for a party that would never occur. She stepped into the florist's shop and requested as many flowers as they could possibly sell her. She'd pay them double, even triple, if it meant selling out their entire stock. 
She went to the poulterer, the winery, the greengrocer, and made the same request. She went to the tavern to find the local musicians and pay them handsomely to play all night at her event. You will be fed well and will meet so many fine people, she was sure to add. She would even provide the finest instruments for them to play. Talent of their kind must be rewarded. They could even keep the instruments when the party was over. They shared skeptical looks between each other and smirked, and then nodded to her and took her money. When she left, they laughed amongst each other at how none of them had any intention of following up. What kind of fool would provide musicians with brand new instruments? How would she survive the winter paying for all this? She must be out of her mind. Well, Friday came, and all of the work had finally been completed, and her purchases had been delivered. The baker, the florist, the poulterer, the musicians, and all the rest of the community that had been invited to the party went instead to the local tavern. They raised a glass to their own hard work that had, they assumed, gone completely to waste, and to the insane old woman on the hill who they imagined sitting alone and in silence at the head of the table, looking at dozens of untouched plates of food in her ridiculous, dusty attire. They could not have been more wrong, for at that very moment that they made their cruel toast to her, they heard the strangest thing. It was music, loud, rollicking, and beautiful, and they heard laughter, the laughter of what sounded to be perhaps more than a hundred people, the clinking of glasses, singing, and whoever among them looked to the old decrepit house on the hill, which several of them did, they would see the entire mansion lit from the inside, warm and inviting. For yes, she sat at the head of the table, and she was beautiful. She wore a satin gown of deep blue with gold stars speckled across it, one of her favorites from her youth that brought out the blue of her eyes. She wore a golden tiara in her white hair and beautiful jewels in her ears, across her neck, on her fingers. But most importantly, she had a huge smile across her carefully painted lips. Looking around the table, she saw her friends, her faithful companions, her devoted and loving sister, a tortured and gifted poet, her cousin who fought in the war, a baron she had an affair with, a viscount she had met on holiday in Cairo, a composer she often commissioned pieces from, a famous chef from Paris, the most talented actor in all of Hungary, a kind-hearted man she helped out of poverty, a few students from the university she often had over for political debates, the princess of a country that no longer existed. The list went on and on. However, if one were to look in on her through the window, I'll get to that soon, they would notice one striking feature about these people. They were all young, or at least younger than her. And they were all, how do I put it? Well, her sister's skin was a pale shade of blue and had blue lips, her golden hair frozen and her gown dripping. She had drowned after falling through the ice at their family's cottage many years ago. And the poet was pale and sickly, her cousin had a gunshot wound in his chest that was bleeding through his wonderful military uniform. 
The Baron had bruises from a noose around his neck and bloodshot eyes. The Viscount clearly had his arm torn off by a vicious wild beast. And the list went on and on. Her composer friend had taken up a violin despite the fact that his fingers were gnarled and rotting. And a few other musically inclined guests joined in. The players may have been dead, but the music was beautiful and alive. The Hungarian actor sang along, and the lady laughed and clapped her hands. The townspeople were not wrong. The friends the lady had so often and so fondly spoken of were no longer alive. Each had died, whether it was through a tragic accident or through natural causes, but they were very real to her. Her years of generosity had not left her alone and isolated, you see. She had a very real reward on earth and that was that her kindness was recognized and desired even after death. The constable again made his way up the hill. The noise was so loud that he thought he might have an adequate excuse to satisfy his curiosity and see what the old crone was up to. He knocked on the door three times, but the music and laughter was so loud that no one heard him. He made his way to the dining room window to look in. At first he couldn't find her, but he froze at the sight of dozens of ghoulish-looking guests. Corpses seemed to dance with one another, enjoy the food that had been set out, drink more than their fill of wine. His jaw dropped and he trembled with fear at the sight. But there she was. He finally saw her, sitting at the head of the table. She was lovely. Her hair was no longer white, but a striking black. Her hands were not arthritic and shaking, they were young and soft as they applauded the lovely music. Her face was smooth, her cheeks were pink. He didn't realize it in his fear, but she had remained this lovely her whole life. Suddenly, it was the lady's sister who stopped dancing with the poet and made eye contact with the constable through the window. Her blue, cracking skin struck him like an arrow to the chest, her white eyes chilling him to the bone. But she merely smiled broadly and drew other guests' attention to his presence. They too smiled and went to the window, laughing at him. Laughing at him crouched on the ground in the winter cold when he could be inside by a roaring fire enjoying some wine. They invited him in with open hearts, but he only recoiled screaming and ran back down to the tavern. This only made them laugh more and shrug the strange visitor away. The party raged all night. It was indeed the grandest party she had ever thrown. She had the time of her life with the finest friends a person might ever ask for. The next morning she was found sitting at the head of the table, even still. Plates of food remained in front of each place setting, but they had been eaten and enjoyed. The wine was completely finished. The instruments sat in the corner well used, but only she remained, and she lay back in the chair, her head leaned back with her face looking up at the ceiling, a big, lovely smile across her lips. She had died in the night, surrounded by the people she had loved most.
Ah, to have even one last dinner party like that. Wouldn't that be something? I hope you eat a meal with someone you love this week. At least one. For me, if not for you. Good night, my friend. Be well. Hi, everybody. This is Kristen Zaza talking to you from the other side of the microphone. And I want to thank you so much for coming again and listening to On a Dark, Cold Night. So last week I was talking about maybe starting an Instagram account. And guess what? I did. So you can follow me on Instagram at Dark Cold Night Podcast. And again, my Twitter handle is A Dark Cold Night. My email is darkcoldnightpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to write, if you have any suggestions, any thoughts, any requests, any kind of story you want to see, a kind of ghost, um, a kind of song you want to hear included, I am really interested. <laughs> I am uh, really interested in making this an interactive thing. Um, yeah, let me know. You can also follow uh, what I'm doing on Patreon. I have a Patreon page. The URL is patreon.com slash darkcoldnight. So you can follow what I'm doing there if you like, and if you feel like supporting the show, if you enjoy what you hear, feel free to donate any amount you like there to keep it going. Most importantly, guys, even more than that, is uh, listen, share, like, and subscribe. I am on iTunes, Google Play, your favorite podcast app, or you can stream it um, on kristenzaza.com slash podcast. That's my website. Uh, but what would be really helpful to me is if you were able to rate and review the show on iTunes, if possible. Uh, just trying to make some ripples here in the podcast world, the horror world, the weird ghost story bedtime world. I don't know. Um, anyway, I'm uh, really excited about the podcast so far, and I want to thank you guys so much for listening. And hope you guys have a wonderful week until we talk next. All right. Have a good one, guys. Bye. Bye.